Welcome to the Functional Football Podcast, where we talk to leading football coaches from around the world about youth football development. Today's conversation is brought to you by functionalfootball.com.au and is designed to help you improve your coaching. We speak to the best coaches who share their insights and lessons they've learned about coaching youth football. Here's your Functional Football Podcast host, Luke Harris. Welcome to another episode of the Functional Football Podcast. Today we're very lucky to be joined by William Vasquez, who is a former coach for the Central Coast Mariners as the under-20s head coach and also as an assistant coach for the National Youth League team. William, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. William, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you give us a brief outline about how you started your coaching journey? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I was playing football up until I was about 17, 16, and I um, had an unfortunate couple of injuries that, that meant that I was going to spend a year off the pitch. And chatting with my parents, I thought at 17, I've got to stay in football, and I decided I'd go and coach a team. So started with some local under-10s. They were um, enthusiastic if lacking a little talent, but that was all right. Um, and it was, yeah, awesome learning. And from there, spent a year there, went back and played a little bit more. And then um, when I was about 19, 20, again, some unfortunate injuries and decided to um, stop playing in a more representative manner and, and started doing studies and coaching as well. And um, my first coaching uh, after my under-10s experience was with a local side, Tagra, um, and they didn't have a first-grade men's side, so myself and a few friends, we decided that we would go and approach them and see if they were interested in our proposal, and and yeah, they said yes, and yeah, we made a team and, and competed in the local league, which was cool. Um, did a bunch of uh, academy work there after that as well, or in and amongst that, with holiday camps and... and um, Academy kind of setups, um, and then yeah, when I was about twenty-one, I had an opportunity to be a team manager for the Central Coast Mariners um, youth team, and so that was a really good experience and insight as a young coach um, to see from, from really experienced coaches and also get in and amongst that environment. Um, so a bunch of learning in that whilst doing my duties as water boy and, and team sheets. Um, and then, yeah, took a year where I went to Madrid, watched some football, um, tried to take in as much as I could, learn a, uh, or debunked a lot of myths about football and, and life. And then, um, yeah, eventually came back and fortunately managed to get a role with the Mariners again, uh, this time as under-20s head coach. And spent three years there, and most recently also with the Barca Academy. And so your role at the Mariners for the 20s, and that was the the team below the A-League team, the under-20s, or the No, so team? we have, the setup is that there's a youth team, which is under-21s at the moment. The, yeah. Each team can have, I think, three to five overage players, which are 21 years old, and then the rest have to be 20 or under. Um so that's the youth team. And then underneath that is the under 20s. So what we have is, what we had was maybe 17, 18 year olds, but competing in the under 20 competition at MPL2. Okay. Um, as well as obviously the opportunity for the older boys in the first grade side that weren't getting game time to come back and get time. Um, so, yeah. And did you, how did you feel that shapes your, your coaching? Was it a, a good experience, challenging? Oh, magnificent. Um, well, from the first year, I was very, very fortunate with some of the people that were around me. Um, the academy director, the technical director, the head coach of the youth team were all massively experienced and had already had some great success, even though they're, they're younger people. Um, and I learned a lot from them as well as the realities of dealing with passionate and ambitious footballers where there was 
they weren't trying to be nice to me necessarily. They they were there for their own purpose, and so if I wasn't serving that, there was <laughs> opportunity for feedback, and <laughs> so it was a lot more real um, in the sense that yeah. So it was a major step up from coaching uh, youth and grassroots men, I guess your friends, yep. your mates at Tagra um, to then... The- look, from a football perspective, the team at Tagra was a really good experience tactically. I'll talk, like I'll say, like the more hardware stuff. We were doing, we were versing a lot of teams that had um, decent setups, decent um, systems. Mm-hmm. There was some intentionality about what they were doing. So, um, and and personally as a footballer and then when I started coaching that was my understanding that this what this was what football was the manipulation of those tactical aspects and so those three years I spent a lot of time um, focusing on that training around that um, albeit not at an extremely high level but th- from the football perspective yeah there was a jump but I felt like I was already working in that realm of trying to teach people how to play better as a team yeah yeah, and obviously an excellent experience. What were the, some of the, the biggest things you had um, coaching at that level with players that obviously are trying to make that step from NPL mm. 2 to to the to youth league yeah. team and then the first team yeah. in Mariners in A-League? Yeah, I think, I think one of the big learnings for me, um, well, the big difference from my previous uh, experience was that I already had really strong relationships with the players at my previous role. So my friends and people that I knew and um, going into this new role, they, it was, it was a lot of learning to be had about the importance of understanding the player and understanding what their expectations are, what their ambitions are. Um, And that definitely didn't hit me straight away. That was a lot of learning over the years of like trying to, yeah, build that relationship before you start to tell people what they should do, let alone helping them to learn. Um, but so that was a, one of the major ones. And I feel like by the third year of my role, I was definitely putting a lot of emphasis into connecting with the players and and starting with, okay, where, what are you seeing so that we can start from there rather than here, this is what I want you to do and that's it. <laughs> and did you find that, that made your role easier as you realised that, hey, I need to connect with the players yeah, in a different way. for sure, because I'm, I think I'm like, I, I, pref- I, I find it hard to just strictly tell someone what to do if there's no reason for it. Like, that doesn't mean within my coaching I don't ever tell someone what to do, but what I mean is without that connection, I've always felt if someone doesn't have a connection with me and they tell me what I have to do, I'm never going to really... Um, feel comfortable about that and potentially might go, well, why am I going to do what you think? It's just your your word against mine. Whereas once you start to connect and relate with the players, I've found that, well, first of all, they know that I have good intentions in what I'm trying to help them with. And because I'm starting with what they see, it, it helps them feel like they're contributing to the idea rather than me just telling them what they have to do. And do you find, I guess, that's, about respect? 100%. 100%. Because you're first of all um, acknowledging them as as footballers. Sorry, as people, first of all. You're acknowledging them first as people, which is just such, I think, a such a powerful thing. And I think where a lot of coaches... And a question I always had as a, as a young coach, and I'm starting to just stand for it and believe it myself, that, yeah, if, if you don't start there... Or if you're just acting in a transactional manner where the coach is utilising you to win the game and you are utilising the coach to move up in the ranks, I think that has a ceiling for for performance, for achievements, but let alone, I, I also fundamentally just think that's, that's a, not the right way to work with people. And I, I guess I'm, I'm really interested because as a coach, I feel like I've had a similar uh, realisation that mm-hmm. from going from the youth to the men, you start to realise, hey, they're still the same, the game's the same, they're still the same concepts and a lot of the men players mm-hmm. have the same issues. However, 
there's not that immediate respect and it's respect that has to be earned. And even though for players you still have to get that, for youth players, for the men, it's it's a different uh, process and a different skill set in order to develop that uh, relationship. For sure, for sure. And, um, yeah, if it, I think there's kind of two aspects with the men. I'm kind of going back on my Tugger experience, which is obviously not as elite, but fundamentally because I had a relationship with the players, the, the, the manner that it was, if they disagreed, they said they said it. Yeah, <laughs> which is obviously confronting and and is a question and a challenge for coaches. Do you, do you want your players to respond um, organically and naturally? If that's the case, you've got to be ready for that kind of a situation where when they see a problem, they're going to say, "Well, I don't agree." <laughs> so, I mean, it was like a double respect thing where if they felt like they would that I was doing it for the good of the group, then maybe they're not going to be as aggressive with it and it's going to be more an inquiry rather than an attack. But also, yeah, your, your understanding or your competency as a coach is, comes under challenge there. <laughs> and do you feel that uh, because of your age, you probably – it was a more difficult task to gain that respect from players who, who are closer to your age? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean – I was a long way younger than the majority of the players that I was working with, so it was it was much more that they, yeah. I had to I had to start with uh, have an understanding of the game that might help us, and and what I'm going to try and do is bring us into into a common plan so that we can achieve something. So that was kind of my approach, rather than you're going to listen to me because I'm the boss, um, which was a really good. I think a reflection um, learning experience because I think the tr- the the respect should be trust and maybe competency based rather than just because you're wearing the whistle. <laughs> exactly, exactly. If we then move from your coaching experience at Central Coast Mariners, you said you did a year in Madrid. Um, what was the purpose of that year in Madrid? Was it to find yourself or was it a holiday or, or uh, was it purely for coaching? Yeah, well, I went on a university exchange when I, when I found out all the grants and the, and the student loans they were willing to give me. It, it seemed too good to be true. Uh, so, <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was a matter of, wow, this is going to be a, a fantastic experience and I can couple it up with so many different things being obviously going to another country, trying to learn to get better at Spanish and and then the football. So it was all of those things looped in for sure. And did you did you have the opportunity to work with any clubs when you were there? Uh, no, I didn't work with any clubs. My, my initial intention was to try and get my B licence there, which is their first level coaching licence and um, quite a bit of resistance from the Federation for external coaches and I've experienced that with other people as well sharing experiences and and um, yeah that was a bit of a disappointment and but the biggest thing that I did was I spent well a large portion of my time going and watching sessions and fortunately in that year um, one of the La Liga clubs, clubs in Madrid held 90% open sessions so I was watching a first team train that were playing on the weekend against Barca and Real Madrid and how they were approaching that and well I was able I was 10 metres from the pitch so I was able to watch all the mannerisms all the way that he was behaving towards his players and it was a really interesting insight into real football a, a relegation battling club as well <laughs> and did you were there any ideas that you picked up or any ideas that you thought you would see but you didn't see yeah I mean I think before I went, I definitely had a perception of like Spain being the holy grail of coaching and and football and yeah, that football would be all clean passing. Uh, so the sessions must represent something that uh, promotes that. But yeah, it, it, it didn't turn out to be the case. There was plenty of things that, and methodologies that we see here in Australia in terms of some of the ways that they were doing it. Um, but it was clear that, 
especially the club that I was watching, Rayo Vallecano, they were quite a... Um, they were very principle-based in terms of the way he wanted to play football, which was um, very interesting to see. So how he implemented that was, yeah, very, very cool to watch the way he... Yeah, he related with the players, but he was still, which was a bit of a surprise to me, quite an authoritarian um, persona as a coach. And from that experience, did you uh, change your perception of elite-level football? Hmm. Um, yeah, it, it, I think it challenged me. Like, there was... Like, it, it gave me a, a bit more of a... It took away the, the rose-tinted glasses a little bit more, so to say. Like, the day-to-day work of what they were doing, the way that they were trying to achieve results, and the fact that the pressure meant that this guy, his coach, and the way he was operating, he couldn't take big gambles on whether, you know, exploratory learning was going to transfer to the game. So it gave me an insight that, yeah, when it when push comes to shove, the way that they were operating or that a lot of coaches operate was in a way that they say, this is what we're going to do. And so, yeah, that was that was maybe a, a de a debunking of a myth in my head a little bit. <laughs> I, that brings me to the next point I wanted to discuss with you. If you're, um, if you look at patterns of play and self organization, where patterns of play is something that the coach might work on regularly at training. Okay, if this happens, we do this, mm-hmm. as opposed to the opposite end of the continuum of self-organisation where the players play what they see, uh, make decisions based on uh, what they know of the game. Do you, Did you see that there was a clear difference in Madrid of what was happening there and did that change your idea of what you do in a session? My My memory is that there was quite a bit of pattern play um, but as I've gone on it's giving me more insight into that Okay, what I mean is that doesn't mean that he wants them to do that play it doesn't mean that <clears throat> he thinks that's the best way for them to learn how to play out of the back it might be a tool for them to get some running in um, so I think I've, I've taken the edge off a couple of years ago I might have said no pattern play what's the point like this and that but I I, I, whilst from a teaching perspective personally I don't think there's as as much um, potential in terms of the complexity they're going to be able to handle I do understand that in first team environments where they have ample amount of they have whatever they want in terms of resources of time and space and that that there might may come a time that they want to do some running, but having said that, it, yeah, it definitely challenged me and made me think about well, what effects does that have? And and it was a good insight into well, what positives does it have? Because there were moments where, and it's the same as when I watch certain teams play, you, who you know that they do patterns, you can see it happen. But I still hold strong that as the complexity and the um, variation increases that's where that kind of a approach if it's too ingrained in the player and the team is going to have some difficulties doesn't mean they won't be able to overcome it but it's going to be definitely a stick in their spokes so i guess some people would argue that pattern play is developing robots uh that it can be boring in training that it's not done at a high intensity i guess then the other argument is that it's also a solution to a problem that may arise and the players don't have to necessarily use it, but they can use it mm-hmm. if it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there could, can still be value, but uh, not always appropriate. Look, I mean, I guess my question would be around that would, would just be, and obviously context-specific, <clears throat> just, what, well, is there is there not any value in getting humans as the opponent just as a start point so that you can and I'm strictly speaking in the in the senior space 
challenging the idea of it there. Is it not more useful to at least understand the mechanics of what an opponent is doing and when it might be a good idea? But for me, in a in other areas, I, I don't really see my foe. Continuing on from that, in your role at the Central Coast Mariners, you obviously uh, were coaching the youth team. Did you find that your training focused on competition for the weekend, on preparation for a specific opponent, or was it more about developing your team to do what you wanted them to do rather based on the opponent? Um, Well, I don't find those points conflicting (laughs) personally because... What I want them to do is be able to deal with the opponent. So I guess, well, I, I, I'm not going to be. I know that it was a pro. It's been a process to arrive to where I am in terms of what I think. But yeah, for a lot of it, as in the last year and a half, two years, it's been the the coming together that learning <clears throat> to deal with your opponent is the development aspect, rather than okay, we're going to teach you how to play 4-3-3 and then so that when you get to the first team you're ready to go in that system well no been working well I was working and we were working as a, as a group with the 20s and the youth team to increase their capacity to understand what is happening in front of them and how they can overcome it so um, in answer to your question our, well, the way we were teaching was to increase awareness, understanding of football and capacity to act on that, um, which would include the um, dripping in of what the opponent might do on the weekend. But that even that is dangerous because it, it, you might face a different structure, you might face different opponents. So if you over... Well, I found that it, we, we really didn't want to overemphasize that. We were just saying this might happen to give you an idea. And what process did you use to then develop the decision-making of the players? Was it a whole bunch of games or was it uh, in individual work or combination? Um, look, trying to keep as much representativeness as possible um, because for me, the, again, especially in the last year and a half, two years, we were working towards them understanding the context of what of the of the environment and and so yeah it, it had we tried to incorporate as much kind of a dual spec, spectrum or continuum of trying to incorporate as much of the problem as possible or the key aspects of the problem whilst trying to get as many repetitions as possible so that they can learn right if it's if you're only getting one repetition but it's full representativeness or it's not really giving them opportunity to learn so get like moving between those two scales to try and find that balance where it's definitely representative and it's giving them any uh enough context for them to understand what's happening and for it to be related but where they're able to still get a decent amount of repetitions so if you then are preparing for your team to both play how you want but also be prepared Mm -hmm. for uh, different scenarios that Mm -hmm. the opponent might throw at you. Was that preparation during the week enough or did you still see um, the importance of pre-game talks? Because um, we spoke about recently how the New Zealand All Blacks rugby coach hasn't done pre-match talks for a while. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about an idea of Hey, it all happens at training game day. You yeah. should be prepared. Yeah, look, I, I um, as someone who like went from all perspectives from from some stages, I was bringing in my laptop, showing clips pre-game and going, "Hey, this is this is situation you might face. How do you think you might overcome that?" Or just straight out telling them earlier on to, okay, today what I want to achieve pre-game is for them to feel relaxed and quick chat, but really decluttering and, and working away from 
trying to overload them or have them with any preconceived ideas before the session, the match starts. So yeah, definitely like have moved in that direction and think, I think also it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the case for all coaches, but I think also as you start to talk to players about something that you've already spoken to them about through the week, you're implicitly like you're implying a lack of trust and you're kind of saying, Hey, remember, I hope you haven't forgotten from two days ago. And the players probably like, yeah, mate, got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you've said it for the 50th time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's more about, I guess, the idea that you you can say it all you want, but yeah, it's up to them to to do it. Mm. You spoke about pre-game you wanted wanted the players to be uh, decluttered, to be relaxed. Mm -hmm. What do you see the role of the warm-up then? Is it uh, a team-based thing? For injury prevention, is it a team-based thing to be prepared for the game or should it be about the individual getting themselves uh, ready, relaxed re- or um, enough excitement for the yeah, game? Attention, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess like I was, I was, yeah, again, another area that I experimented with and tried to gain insight into from talking to players to just watching the behaviour. Um, I think it's it's fair to say that <clears throat> different people like to experience different things pre-game. There's some people that barely want to touch the ball or barely want to run. Um, but then there's others that really try and get to like high speeds and oh, not high speeds but high intensities before the game. So I tried to give enough bandwidth where people could um, behave in the way that they thought was going to allow them. So giving that freedom, but recognizing that, you know, it can't be to the point where three guys are doing something else and seven guys are doing something completely different. So it was a matter of trying to juggle that idea of giving the individualized warm up, allowing the players that felt like they needed more to do more and the ones that do less, well, you just do your bare minimum. But then I also definitely thought the idea of maybe trying to create situations in the warm-up where it was complex because I like, I mean, again, unproven, but I like the idea of them having faced something difficult before the games come so that they're comfortable in themselves rather than maybe some false sense of, I don't know, from, from an unopposed thing. Oh, I, I, any confidence kind of boosts. I, I understand the, the need for the balance, but it was an interesting thing that I tried to challenge a little bit with different games to see if they if they responded well to that. And did you find uh, the, the players gave you feedback in that sense from what you were experiencing? Yeah, experimenting? And, 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 I mean, as I said, I, I well, some of the players I had good relationships from working two, three years with, so... Yeah, they could be pretty frank with me and of course they probably didn't tell me exactly what they thought but it's pretty close and they would you know I would usually ask the guy who I knew loved every physical aspect he loved making sure he did 100% of the intervention and saying well what's that sufficient for you and if I felt like he had the scope to achieve all those things that he wanted to then I was happy and then also maybe getting a gauge from the one who's a little bit less orthodox and likes doing his own thing a little bit more and seeing how his mood was, both asking him directly, how was that for you? Um, but also just seeing his manner. That's going to give me a good insight if he's ready for the game or not. And did you find that moving away from a regular set routine uh, was beneficial for the players? Did they prefer that or, or yeah. was routine something they wanted? No, I mean, like, I, I think... After a while, they understood that I wasn't one for routine or like um, traditions and stuff. So they understood me as a bit of a disruptor. So it became the norm a little bit, um, which I was happy that they started to get comfortable with that because I think that's important. It also gets them into a starts to be in their being that they, they're going to be adaptable people rather than rigid. This is how life is people. And, um, so, look, I found though there were, in due time, if there was early on, I, I didn't hear it, but in due time they were pretty comfortable. They didn't really make a big deal out of it, but I was never changing the 
warm up to the point where you're like, wow, this has got nothing to do with what we did last week. <laughs> correct, correct. Um, I guess then the next question I want to ask was how important do you feel competition is to a player's development? Did you find that uh, that was the most important session of the week was in, in actual fact the game, the, the competition? Um. I guess something to take into account is like, well, it does. No, obviously, it matters my opinion on that, but the, the truth was that it, for the player, it was. Mm. <laughs> so, like, it doesn't. It didn't change. I guess. I, I guess it. Are you asking if it changed my behaviour according to how important it was in terms of learning, or? I guess at at your level, yeah. Did you at? the under 20s level was it um did you okay if i reframe it was it a did you use it as a measure of how training was going or oh, yeah. or how an individual both, developed but no no but both uh like it would it, i mean obviously it would give us some gauge of whether we were creating representative environments so that things were carrying on carrying over not strictly because nothing is ever strictly transferred training to game but like Ideas and the, the the I guess the comfort of the players overcoming the s- sort of situations that they came up against that we might have looked at in or, or or they might have been exposed to in training that would be a, a gauge of whether there was some relevance of what we were working on. But at the same time, especially with the under twenties, my view was that this is going to be some more learning. So throughout the game, my behaviour was yes, of course. There's the tension of trying to win the game, but. I was not going. I was not willing to compromise the way that we did that in terms of whether I was going to say, "Hey, you have to make this run," and because I felt like that was going to compromise the bigger goal, which was their their learning and their their autonomy of their learning. <clears throat> so that was a really big thing for me. So that guided a lot of the way I behaved uh, throughout the match at half time. And we, we definitely, well, I definitely took it as a learning. So collaboratively trying to figure out what is the opponent doing to us, discussing that with them and saying, okay, how are we going to overcome this and those kinds of things. So that was your conversation. It was more about them being, c- collaborating in the solutions to, to yeah, the problem. Yeah, for sure. And and look, as a, as, as a coach, I mean, I, I, I think it's... Um, possible that sometimes because we're just not in the heat of it we can maybe see something and and maybe i can maybe i would ask them did you notice this and if if they were like yes but i I don't think it's an issue okay cool if you're comfortable with it no worries but um more often than not anything that i raised or or the things that they raised correlated quite a bit with the ideas that i had about the game so um but it was all about trying to get them to better perceive the game so that they can start problem solving from minute one rather than waiting till we get into the change room because that was that would be too late. I guess then if you speak about your approaches then to the game and to the players collaborating to the solutions, did you find that you used a style of play per se and, and were positions... Um, or how, how did you approach mm-hmm. positions in your coaching? Then? Yeah, okay. Well, a style of play, I mean, yes, because we had for a, a large portion of the time um, and anyway, that was the purpose of the youth team was to prepare these players for <clears throat> first team or try and, try and get them to a level where they could perform at first team level. Sorry. Um, so... We were definitely, and it's fortunate that it matches with mine, we were definitely working towards a concept, a philosophy of of the way that we wanted the football to be. So there was that, but it was more, the way I tried to portray it was more so around kind of two questions. How much risk are we willing to take with the ball? Okay, better better said, how trusting are we of our capacity to overcome pressure? I found that was a big question to answer because that 
guides a lot of your typical uh, football style questions that answers them. You know, it answers, are you willing to play out from the back? Are you willing to, you know, play out under pressure? Are you, are you looking to play through a block? Are you looking to get balls in the box? So that was kind of the main point of with the ball. It was like, or how trustworthy are we of our capacity to overcome versus how, like, against the, the concept of risk, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, well, the playing style was that you, if you, to put it back in the descriptor manner, it was to play through pressure. It was to be comfortable at playing despite players trying to come and pinch the ball from you in the front third and, and breaking down opponents and dominating the game. But I, yeah, I tried to really rephrase it so that it was a little bit more um, attainable and more useful for the player. And I found it, I, I liked it because I felt like I was able to also empower them a little bit and say, listen, you're good enough. This is not enough pressure. This is not a good enough press that you should be um, denying your capacity to overcome it. So, yes. So I guess within that framework of overcoming pressure, um, did you have a specific formation and specific positions that had specific roles and responsibilities or was it more dynamic in that, hey, if you're here, you can make these choices? Mm. Um, definitely like, I mean, we would still put people into positions and, (laughs) and have a formation and, and that, but as time went on, I mean, they all like, as they, as the relationship was building, they could believe me when I said, interpret the game and adapt according to what's happening. What I mean is. Uh, yes, everyone understood their role and what they were trying to do. But as we went on, we started to evolve positionally and allowed us to be more flexible with our positioning, which was never going to happen straight away because the complexity of 11 people coordinating is takes time. And and so, I mean, they, they're all clever enough players and have played enough football that they understood that basic structure helped them so that part was never going to be difficult because we're playing a formation I'm sure they've played a thousand times so that early stage was fine and then it was just a matter of encouraging them to evolve within that and and work in an adaptable manner rather than and and oh sorry it was a challenge for some some players were very comfortable and were this is the freedom they were begging for for years and for some it was it was scary because they didn't have anything to grab onto. It was like, yeah, but where do you want me to be? And it was like, well, I want you to be where the opportunities are. And that was a difficult thing for some to grasp, but what I thought was the right journey to start on at least. And I guess in that time, did you see improvement in the players? I, obviously some of them might have moved on. Uh, look, I, I, I don't know if I can classify it as improvement. I'm going to be suffering from a load of bias there as well. Yeah. Um, so, but what I can, what I can be comf- confident in is that at least their interactions between each other and their responsiveness to the game itself was, was, was happening and was like, they were becoming more attuned to what was happening, both what their teammates were doing and what the opponent was doing. So I think I think I was happy in the amount of freedom that that gave them to understand, whereas other heuristics or, or, or roles, like concepts of roles and responsibilities, um, might have answered those questions that they would that what they were exploring around for them before they even stepped on the field. And we've, I guess we've spoken a lot about the, um, the work you did with the under-20s. How does this then relate to, I guess, 10 years earlier, the under-10s, under-12s? Is, do you find a lot of what you did with that age group at the 20s would still uh, transfer to a younger age group? And if, if it does, how, how do you use it with the youngers? year players that you now coach Mm. um yeah i think it's 
I think I fundamentally still believe in that and and that that positions and and roles are potentially debilitating to the player gaining understanding as to why typically a fullback provides width or a center midfielder connects with the player whatever that may be those roles and responsibilities are giving the solution before they understand the need for the solution so yeah i mean in the 10s and 12s i i would in those kind of age groups i would even go a little bit more extreme because of the social constructs that come with words like defender attacker striker winger and the the fact that, that may start to uh, pigeonhole the player and for him to just behave in that manner um, if you were to to force wall explicitly with that and also depending on their interpretation so I think it's a I think it's something that needs to be approached with um, intentions rather than just you're the striker because that's gonna mean that may mean something very strange to the child and he may just stay upfield all day and wait for his goals and not be happy when he gets served on a platter. So I guess then if you use the term striker, do you then explain to the the child what you expect of them in, in that role? Um I think I think ideally we should try and move towards finding a way to explain or give some sort of you will play here today without attaching those preconceived ideas for them in order for them to be able to recognise the moment that they should be high up the field near the goal <laughs> and recognising the moment that they should be supporting some in, a, in some other way. Um, because, of course, being... A high striker is is correct. It will be the right decision at some stage, but the when and the why is what we would like to expose them to now for them to start to understand, hey, I should be in this moment, I should be helping out. In this moment, I should be higher up. Now, you can go about that two different ways. You can start to tell them, okay, when this happens, I want you to be here. When this happens, I want you to be here. But in my experience, I would... Well, from my experience, I'm saying I have learned that I would prefer to have them start understand and then be clever as a coach to maybe put questions in their way that forces them to reflect and, and understand why they're doing certain things. And do you find then that when they understand the why, they they start playing uh, not just in that position, but for the situation. I mean, I don't think it will be a like a specific light bulb moment. Like, I think it's a lot more gradual than that um, and, and messy and like, there's a thousand different things playing into their decisions. So uh, I, I don't know that it will happen instinct, uh, as instantly and there'll be a performance increase. But what I think is important is that you're starting them on a journey of understanding rather than which, which can quickly happen at that age is for them to understand the player as receiver of information and the playing out of actions. Whereas I think that they should be starting to gain insight and understanding of the game and, and start to be an autonomous player who critically thinks. And I guess going on from that, uh, today I read an article and I guess it, They've come up a lot with uh, coaches lamenting the loss of the dribbler in the game, and and in the Premier League at the moment you have your Eden Hazard and your Wilfred Zaha, but uh, there aren't as many as there used to be. Do you think that's an issue for youth coaches? Is it what you're saying is kids playing positions and don't think they can dribble? Um, coaches wanting to play a Barcelona passing game and, and not allowing players to dribble? Or is it that the game has changed, that there's not as much opportunity in the elite level game to dribble as much and that's why 
there isn't as much dribbling because there's so much on the line at that level. I mean, I have no way of <laughs> conclusively answering that. Um, and so I won't attach a this is the reason, but I, I think it's worth reflecting on for sure whether um, I'm imposing the way – well, it would depend on that player's context, right, and their upbringing and how they how they learn to play football, whether uh, a coach has influenced them into being a certain player or whether they developed into that and that that's what suits that person. Mm. So so that would be the question. And and I also think your point of the the your point very valid of well potentially that is the situation of the game. Potentially Silly example. Potentially, there's more high pressing than what there was before. Hence, the ball you're you're coming out of high pressure, and some could ask whether you would like dribbling in that in that zone. Um, but I do think what I do think is important is to is to not taint certain problems or situations with solutions. So, whilst I use that example. I've seen plenty of youth players um, that have confidence in what they do dribble on the top of their 18-yard box as a centre midfielder to break the press. Now, in some people's eyes, that's risky and, and dangerous, but it, it can be just as low risk as a pass out of the back third. So um, my point on that would be to allow the players to figure out or to be able to interpret um, useful actions or useful decisions in those in those environments, rather than saying this is the this is the way that you overcome this problem. I think that's extremely important. And once we start to get into that space, it'll be pretty cool to see what starts to happen. Because, as I said, I've seen some players who I'm confident are, are acting instinctively, doing things like that, and and making me. You know, think, wow, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and, and I guess that's the the autonomy you want from a player, isn't it? Exactly. And and well, more than anything, they're they to use a word, their mindfulness, they are present, they are there and they understand themselves, they understand their opponent, they understand the environment, mm. they understand the situation, and then they act. And if after processing all of that, obviously subconsciously, they believe that's the right decision, then fantastic. And, 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 and we want them to just be getting better at making those good decisions. And that's what uh, in a previous podcast, I spoke to Marco Sullivan and he, and he said, what you want as a coach is to develop understanding in the game, not just off the game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the perfect example of a player understanding mm in the game and the decision that suits the environment for themselves at that present moment. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think, well, I don't know, but my belief is that you need, you need to have them working in an autonomous state. They need to feel comfortable in their decisions to be able to achieve that. And I guess going on from autonomy, uh, we've spoken before about, Autonomy and it, its role in coaching, and some research has said that uh, developing players that have autonomy can help improve uh, skill acquisition. Uh, what do you feel is important in developing autonomy? You've, you've already spoken about how uh, you like to create an environment where players. Do, do lots of games and practice scenarios and have repetition. Are there other ways you use to develop autonomy within your your players that you coach? Um, yeah, I think I think the biggest thing about that I try and create, you know, like with with autonomy is like for them to feel both responsible and in control of their learning. Um, the moment. Not the moment. I'm sure there's plenty of examples of footballers who have been receivers of information and taken it on and become successful. Um, but I think when they're in control and, you know, using self-determination 
kind of an idea when they're doing it because they want to i think it can be quite powerful and you start to see extra mile kind of behavior where they're de- definitely not doing things because the coach is expecting that but they're doing it because they want to so that's kind of the autonomy the the, the key part of autonomy that i'm thinking like rather than do they do their own warm-up you know, which can be considered a sense of autonomy or, or a symptom. It's, are they, do they feel like they're in control and they're responsible for their learning and their growth and, and well, themselves? Um, so, and to answer how to, how to do that, I think, I think again, as I've gone on, you can do like, um, explicit things that will potentially enhance that situation. But I think the biggest, point is whether they have a mindset of it which i think comes through a relationship kind of an aspect rather than specifically your you guys are going to do this part yeah. in this part you pick you know whatever it is so like it's an overtime thing and it's a tra- it, it, it's it becomes like it's as a result of the way you behave towards them over an extended period rather than one or two days so in that sense you're trying to trying to uh, discuss or not discuss, sorry. No, does that mean to understanding that, you know, if they want to achieve something, it's going to have to come from them and, and trying to help them with that rather than them being some, them being the receivers of your information or whatever it may be. I guess would to finish off, I'd like to ask one last question. What's a piece of advice you've received, uh, from someone in your life, it could be another coach, it could be a mentor, it could be a, a teacher um, or a friend that you relate to coaching and you still use to this day that's helped you in your coaching journey. Yeah, I mean, I wish it was It was just a probably, I, I don't know where I saw it, whether it was an online quote or something, but something that's definitely stuck with me is that um, whilst ever, and I spoke like mentioned it earlier, whilst ever it's a transactional thing and the the player feels like the coach is utilising the player to get whatever he wants, there's a big ceiling. And so once the player feels like he's acting to try and help that player, um, I think that can be so much more powerful. I can't remember the beautiful quote that it was explained <laughs> in, but it was, you know, along the lines of once, once the player sees that you're you're doing things to help him rather than to win your game, you're going to have a lot more success and it's going to be a much more healthy relationship as well. I think that's very important in a coach that does help the player and the individual in their development and isn't just focused on results, is going to get better results from the players, isn't it? <laughs> Ironically, yeah. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Well, we've had a, a great chat covered almost every topic under the sun, although there's probably another 10 more that we could chat for another hour about, but it's been a a pleasure having you on the show. Awesome. Thanks a lot, mate. This has been another episode of the Functional Football Podcast with Luke Harris. Get even more tips to improve your coaching and continue the conversation at functionalfootball.com.au or find us on Twitter and Facebook.